Oh, do you ever get that where sometimes when you're talking, your throat just like closes up and it's, yeah, happens to me. <clears throat> Fuck. Anyway, now I have to drink a whole bunch of water and I'm definitely going to have to pee. Welcome to another episode of the MacGuffin Podcast, the movie review podcast that dreams are made of. From San Diego, California, you are Keith Foster. And you are Cassidy Robinson, recording in an undisclosed location in the Rocky Mountains. And today we will be discussing a few movies. You were able to see The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent, the Nicolas Cage comedy. Mm -hmm. Uh, You'll be doing a solo of that. And together, we will be reviewing Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. And for the streaming homework, we'll be discussing 24-Hour Party People. We watched on Amazon Prime. I was lurking around on the MacGuffin's Twitter page. Okay. Uh, you know, just... <laughs> yeah, we both said we were getting on Twitter, and then, like, immediately we were back on Twitter. Well, I don't tweet from from the page, really. I just go on there to promote the show, and every once in a while, maybe a retweet or something like that. But I did notice there is this discourse going on. This seems like a reoccurring discourse that kind of comes and goes about, but specifically in regards to the new Doctor Strange film. Oh, okay. Okay, this is funny. Uh because I, I, at the top, like before recording, I was saying that I have a segment for you and I think it's the same. I think it's the same thing. Oh, so we're on the same page. kind. I of. think so. Okay. Uh, well, you know, this, is, this isn't a list or a, a game or anything like that. I just kind of wanted to discuss this topic overall. Sure. Um, and that is that apparently there is some sort of, backlash or concerns about the content in the new Dr. Strange film as being particularly dark and violent or horrific or perhaps too much so for a Marvel movie or a PG-13 film. And and we'll get into the specifics with uh, Dr. Strange a little later when we review the movie, but... Um... Right, and that's part of the reason why I wanted to just sort of uh, annex this part of the conversation to sure. just being about this because I feel like it could swallow up a lot of review if yeah, we just yeah. get stuck on this topic. Um, so rather than do that, I think it's better just to talk about you know this discourse or controversy or non controversy be- before we even get into the movie. Sure. Yeah, uh, my opinion is that people are fucking babies. <laughs> uh, it really is driving me nuts. It's annoying. Uh, this is how shit gets like super sanitized. Like it's PG 13, it's not mm-hmm. G, it's not PG. Uh, you know, is it a little darker than some other Marvel movies? Sure, yeah. Is there some more explicit violence it's about i mean yes 
but in general like what the fuck happened chill out people and, and specifically i saw a tweet that was like uh you know comparing the violence in doctor strange to uh pirates of the caribbean dead man's chest and of course there was a clip taken very much out of context where like davy jones like chokes a guy with his fucking tentacle beard and sure. i mean it's it's gnarly it's gross but the camera cuts away so you don't see the goriest stuff like if you came out of the movie and you're offended or your kid is having nightmares or something that's one thing mm-hmm. um but to just come out and be like oh i don't know that was a little much for pg-13 it's just the most annoying fucking thing in the world to me. Well, I think there's something kind of ahistorical about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it, it, it comes from the fact that the average moviegoer has not seen a non Marvel movie in 15 years. Sure. Some Um, people probably. And so their gauge of what is in a normal blockbuster is based on one large Disney franchise. Well, in in general, you know, uh, in general, blockbusters tend to try to appeal to, you know, the widest audience possible. So sure. The Fast and the Furious movies, they're not going to have intense violence. It's all going to be kind of car crashy explosion stuff that people walk away from, you know. Like they they tend to not even go for any kind of blood anymore because blood on screen is a quick way to get an R rating. You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. Like big budget studios are aiming directly for the PG-13 mark. And so I think, you know, maybe that skews them a little closer to PG. Yes, certainly. And I actually just uh, IMDb'd a bunch of the Fast and the Furious movies. Because for some reason in my brain, I thought that the first few might have been R, and then they like gradually went PG thirteen. It looks like they've always have been PG thirteen. Just for funsies, I went back and I read up on when the rating system was created and when certain ratings were first put into place. Okay, you know a lot of people probably think that it's been the way it's always been forever yeah and and you know uh for a, a more detailed you know look into the mpa's rating system there is a, a pretty cool documentary called I, I think it's called this film is not yet rated right yeah and it, it breaks down this whole thing if you want like a deep dive into how the mpaa works and when yeah. it when it started and yeah and and now that doc's not really new anymore and so things have probably changed since then a little bit as far as uh you know how the the board yeah, the mpa true. board votes and things like that but um and certainly the, the standards have changed but you know by and large the rating system as it exists today it was the same when that documentary was made um in america mm-hmm. so before the mpaa came into being in 1968 there was what was called the movie production code and the movie production code was a kind of self-regulated big list of do's and don'ts oh god that was uh (laughs) was created by 
uh, a man named Will Hayes. Uh, a lot of times it's uh, called the Hayes Code because of that. And was largely sort of enforced by a man named Joseph Breen, who worked from 1934 to 1954, which was when the Hayes Code was the most uh, aggressively enforced in, in Hollywood. Um, by, by the mid-50s or so, uh, the rise of television kind of came uh, kind of like nowadays where you have the streaming services sort of, and video games and, and the internet sort of competing for attention with, with uh, going to the movies. Um, the rise of television was sort of doing the same thing back then. So a couple of things kind of happened, one being all of these different widescreen aspect ratios so that you would get something bigger and grander when you go to the movies and you can get on TV. And the other thing is that uh, a lot of these studios started to loosen up a little bit with the Hays Code rules and started enforcing it less and less. Um, it was still technically the rule, but, um, you know, by the time you get into like the early sixties and psycho and, and like Otto Preminger's like anatomy of a murder and things like that, it's pretty clear that things that were in those movies would not have passed even 10 years before. Eventually by 1960, 1968, that's when they did away with the Hays Code and uh, created the MPAA. And originally, the MPAA, G, P, G, R, and X, and X was eventually changed to NC-17. And PG was treated more like how we treat the PG-13 today. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's there's a lot of examples of like PG movies and in this time period that have you know, a lot more swearing and is, is sometimes even some nudity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, as a modern viewer, it is kind of jarring to go back and see these and, and be like, oh, this was PG. <laughs> uh, right. Because to us, PG is just like G rating graduating to junior high, right? Yeah, it's kind of, it's largely seen as like what, your average family movie would be. Yeah. So back, back before the PG 13 was created in uh, the mid to late eighties, both G and PG covered a lot more ground. So a lot of like your average Western with the exception of something totally crazy, like the wild bunch or something, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a lot of, a lot of these movies would still fall under the G rating. And PG was was kind of seen as a little spicier. And then the R's were specifically for, you know, truly adult-minded movies, not pornography, but things like Taxi Driver. Yeah, Dirty Harry. So this kind of leads to another question. I'll, I guess I'll just, like, open it up as a discussion from here. Do you think the advent of the PG-13, which... Uh, I believe the first movie to become PG-13, well, the first movie that was rated PG-13 that came out in theaters was... It was either, wasn't it Temple of Doom or Gremlins? Temple of Doom started a uh, uh, a campaign because there's the scene where the guy's heart gets pulled out, but the actual first PG-13 rated movie 
was Red Dawn. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So, yeah, do you think that the advent of the PG-13 was a net positive or negative on the current standard? I Because it kind of shifted everything backwards, right? Like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it made the G basically kids' movies only. Yeah. PG just barely above that. I mean, I think the rating system in general is dumb and it's it's always been flawed because you know, how do you rate how do you rate these things against each other when they're, you know, like it's it's all very different and I I get the idea, you know, I especially if you're a parent, I understand the concern of like you know, do I want my kids to see this content or whatever? Mm. Um, especially nowadays with streaming, good luck to you. Um, I, but I feel like people don't really use it like that, how they're supposed to use it. Like I, you know, when, when you get like nerdy fanboys that are like, Oh, Hellboy has to be rated R. And so they, you know, just shove in a bunch of gratuitous, bullshit that sucks too like i so i i hate the rating system in general i think for a time it probably helped um you know like the 80s and 90s i i think i think there was probably a it was maybe watched a little less for that it was you know because they just created this new category so I don't know. It seemed like there was just a little more wiggle room back then or something. But but by now, it feels like everything's kind of locked in its place because there's so many examples of, oh, you can say one F-bomb in a PG-13 or, you know, you can show half a tit for so many seconds or, you know what I mean? Right. Uh, as long as it's not moving or whatever. So I, I think when it started... Maybe it was a good thing, um, but I, I think similar to the way people have gotten too dependent on like Rotten Tomatoes, um, you know, for their ratings and stuff. I, I think similarly, people maybe hang a little too much importance on the rating. Um, well, I think what happened is that the ratings themselves went into marketing where it had less to yes, do with. Yes had less exactly. to do with like a parental guide. Now every time a rated R movie does well, they're like, "Oh, this is the, you know, highest grossing rated R movie or whatever." It, it is. It's a marketing material and it's gross right. and annoying. Remember when Revenge of the Sith came out in 2004, whatever it was, 2005, uh-huh. when uh they marketed it as the first PG-13 Star Wars movie? Yes, I do, and it was <laughs> silly. And- and then when, when M. Night Shyamalan released The Happening, they, the marketing went heavy on, in on this is the first R-rated M. Night Shyamalan movie. Yeah, and that shit is so annoying. And and when Deadpool came out, it was like, it wasn't the first rated R superhero movie, but they kind of treated it like that. Uh, right, yeah, they're like, this isn't your mom and dad's Marvel movie. And it's like, motherfuckers, Blade came out. 15 years ago. Uh, yes, and I'm glad you brought up Blade because this is uh, a point that I wanted to make uh, specifically in regards to the people who are 
who are uh, clutching their pearls at um, at uh, the the new Doctor Strange. So we're sort of in a unique position to sort of look at this because we grew up in that generation. We've talked about it before, I think, mm-hmm. but we grew up in this weird generation in the in the eighties and early nineties where hard R genre movies were marketed to kids. Yeah, like Aliens and RoboCop and there and would Terminator be Terminator and and there'd be a cartoon version of it that you know was on TV and they couldn't actually like shoot guns but they'd blast lasers or whatever and yeah and and there's like toy lines for the for that yeah, stuff Yeah, I had a bunch of the alien action for you could get like Newt and you could get Ripley and you could play with these characters who that you're technically not even allowed to go see in theater which I mean, which I think is you're with an you know, adult. Also, is why there's so much nostalgia for a lot of these '80s franchises. You know, that were only one or two movies, but you know, yeah. they're still making them because we we had the toys, we had the bed sheets. You know, the, mar- the that marketing worked. Yeah, and they so marketed all of these things exactly the same way they marketed Star Wars or any other or Indiana Jones or any of these like. Um, broader properties, mm-hmm. there was they, you know, the people, and maybe this is just like the suits hadn't really caught up with, with uh, the discourse yet. So they're like, whatever. It's a movie about aliens. It's got like kids are gonna get. It's Star Wars. Whatever. Everything yeah, exactly. Everything in space is Star Wars. Make a toy. I'm certain that's it. Uh, I feel like, you know, movie producers are perpetually five to 10 years behind the curve on everybody else. Yeah. I mean, I think there's a lot of that. Um, I'm just annoyed by it. And I'm afraid this is going to set a negative precedent for Marvel going forward and just for PG 13 movies in general, because people have been so vocal about it. And it's like, I mean, yeah, there's some stuff in there that I'm like, Oh, all right. (laughs) Uh, But it's not, crazy it's not no, like yeah, you there have... was nothing that i i was ex- given the, the discourse i was expecting to have a few bigger moments of shock and and i wasn't really but um i mean i i am glad i saw do you it think before. that blade was the last movie that was made for adults well what, the last r-rated movie that was marketed to kids Maybe. Maybe. I think it might be. I think it's also the uh well unless you I count the matrix, which I, I don't know. Don't. I mean, you kind of get that with Deadpool. You kind of you know what I mean? Like it's maybe not marketed the same way, but they still they're still trying to reach the same audience as the X-Men movies and the you know the Marvel movies. They're just they're trying to reach the dads. But I still think they're they're doing a similar thing. So I'm actually gonna say no. Because of the the PG 13 wedging its way between R and PG and the PG becoming kind of softer and the G becoming softer, like back in the day, yeah, um, there yeah. was a there was topless uh shower scene in Pretty in Pink, or not Pretty in Pink, uh 16 Candles, which was a PG film. I don't know. I just say get rid of the rating system altogether. Well, you know, I mean, there's pluses and minuses to it. 
better the rating system than the Hayes Code? Yes, that's true. I mean, yes, for sure. I I'm just of the opinion of like, I don't know, see it before you take your kids and then decide. Right. I mean, maybe that's a little less feasible now than it used to be because it's so expensive to go see movies. Sure. Uh, but there's plenty of websites out there that kind of give, give you a breakdown of the content. Right. I think it's been fun watching, you know, people commenting on this online and seeing all of the examples of either PG or, or PG 13 movies that have so quickly kind of erased from people's memories of where content could go under these ratings. I mean, well, I, I mean, I think, I mean, to me, I think that's kind of part of it. If the it like, if, if it doesn't stick with you, then it should be PG 13. If, if it gets you in the guts, then it's an R like, you know what I mean? Well, I was going to say the ring was a PG 13 movie. Jesus Christ. You were 16 fucking years old. Like it's PG 13. You know what I mean? Like if we're really going off of that, then you should be fine. I definitely wasn't sure you were scared, but like, <laughs> that's what, that's what teenagers go to horror movies for. Right. I was also telling another story with a friend when we were discussing this, of uh, this instance in when I, when I was a very young kid, it was like a birthday kind of thing or whatever is when I was living in Phoenix, Arizona. And we were all under 10 probably, or just about there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a bunch of kids come over, um, my friends, and we had like a uh, sleepover or whatever and rented movies from Blockbuster, that kind of situation. And it might have been a Friday the 13th <laughs> that it landed on because we were all gung-ho on renting Friday the 13th or a Friday the 13th movie. So I knew it was a lost cause, but I was hoping that we would... Uh, wear them down and uh they talked us down out off of the ledge of renting a jason movie and instead the compromise was for us to rent the poltergeist because it was pg sure and it was like you know spielberg related and whatnot the reality of the situation is the poltergeist is a much scarier movie than any of those any of those hokey Jason movies. Um, I I could see at that age watching the first one and being kind of freaked out. Like, I mean, I think by that age I had already seen, I had already seen Child's Play. I'd already seen uh, Halloween. Oh like, yeah, but probably on TBS or some shit. No, no, no. I you know this was like at other friends' houses and stuff. Oh sure. Um. So I'm like I said, my my perspective is skewed up to this whole conversation anyways, because I saw a lot of stuff at a really young age. I mean, um, so did I. I. I saw rated R movies well before I was 18, but, you know, I... Right. It was with... Usually it was with uh, parental supervision or approval. I mean, every once in a while. Right. Uh, what I'm saying is that The Poltergeist, being a PG thir- or PG film, because it was before the 13th Yeah, it... it, it it's Doesn't... a more effective horror film because it's actually like takes its time, has good characters in, and uh, there's more of an atmosphere and a build to those scares. And there's yes. a lot more like children in peril. 
Well, in that and movie, isn't Poltergeist? Isn't that the one where he like tears his face off in the yeah, mirror? Yeah, yeah. Like it's um, yeah. There's a scene where one of the ghost hunters is uh, staring into a mirror, and he tears his face off by the mouth and then realizes that the ghosts are playing tricks with his mind but you're seeing like chunks of flesh like drop into the sink below him oh far more graphic than anything anything in doctor strange oh and anything that's in any of those jason movies i mean the jason movies yeah kids get stabbed and clubbed to death or whatever but i yeah i guarantee you that movie uh, had a longer lasting impact on my psyche than if I had just seen a guy with a hockey mask. Ultimately, my issue with the rating system, uh, it, it isn't, you know, again, I think, yes, parents should have a guide for content and stuff like that. But but ultimately, uh, you know, how much is it used for that? I don't know. But But my point is, ultimately, everybody has different, lines you know everybody has different things that are going to affect them and so it's very hard to come up with a broad rating for everybody the ratings don't do the job that they're supposed to do which is to give you an idea of what the movie is going into it right because because movies at their best and even at their worst fuck it movies (laughs) are an art form yeah, And you can't, I mean, you, you wouldn't walk into a salon or a, uh, or a gallery and then, you know, they have like every single painting under some sort of curtain and they have to hand you a card to tell you what the rating of that, of that uh, particular painting is before you decide to open and look. So, they, I mean, they might do it for a specific show. Yeah. And that's kind of a fun concept for a show, but, but yeah, I, I, it's that's essentially what they're trying to do and but because it's a mass commercialized thing you you have to try and find a one-size-fits-all sort of deal some decades are more conservative than others and you can get away with some things 10 20 years ago that you can't get away with now and vice versa but the -hmm. other thing and and we'll leave it at this of pg-13 violence like let's say you're taking your kids to a doctor strange or Mm -hmm. even like say something like Coraline, right. Which is like basically a kid's movie, just a very dark one. Sure. Um, and has some scares, you know, and there's, there's a whole broad range of movies that are kind of like that. Uh, I think there's a little bit of it, like it's kind of like building up an immunity in your children. Like, I think it's not a, altogether bad thing to expose kids to a certain amount of stylized uh horror terror i think the more and more you 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 try and sort of sand away the edges off of things the less interesting the work becomes overall Uh, yes that okay you're making a couple points there and i in general i do agree with you that you know, because that's kind of how I was brought up. Uh, uh, it is, you know, I do appreciate that I have something of a tolerance and I have kind of, I have guideposts that I can go off of, right. for, you know, what's going to uh, bother me and what's going to, you know, and, and in general, I don't even avoid stuff based off of that. It's more just like, I, I kind of have to mentally prepare. 
<laughs> that's not the point. The point is the imagination does what the imagination does. No, and, and that, that's all gonna, I'm saying is parents are going to know their children better and they should gauge their interest in the thing before. Yes, they go. that again, we're not fucking parents. No. Fuck the rating system. You know, your kids better than than we do to, you know, 30 something year old assholes on a podcast. But right. I'm not trying to solve anything with this conversation. I'm just uh, contributing to the discourse. Sure. I think the people who were shook by Dr. Strange should maybe add some other uh, genres to their diet. All right. I mean, we'll get into it when we talk about when we talk about Dr. Strange. But I think there's stuff in the WandaVision show that was more chilling than than uh, a couple acts of violence in that movie. But before we talk about Dr. Strange, Keith Foster, please give us a shorty on what is it called? The unbearable likeness of being. No, the, the unbearable... unbearable weight of massive talent. Yes. Uh, okay. So the unbearable weight of massive talent is uh, about Nicholas Cage playing Nicholas Cage. Uh, and he's kind of at this point in his career where he's, he's up for a prestige role, but it, it's kind of like a big, like a big movie. Um you know, kind of like the types of movies that don't really exist anymore, but he's, he's up for this role. He doesn't get it. So he starts to kind of question what he's doing, you know, where's his career going. And he also has pressure from his separated wife to spend time with his daughter. Uh, you know, she's that at that age where, she, you know, she could use some quality dad time. So he's considering uh, uh, just retiring from acting altogether. But then he gets this mysterious invite to do this uh, independently wealthy guy's birthday party. Who's a huge Nicolas Cage fan. It's just like, you know, a weekend in this private villa, rich person's birthday, who's played by Pedro Pascal uh, and turns out Pedro Pascal is like a super fan of Nicolas Cage. He wants him to like read the script that he's got. And then he is uh, uh, sidetracked by the CIA who insists that this mysterious wealthy guy is a notorious drug lord and, you know, a very dangerous person who has kidnapped the daughter of someone who's running for like the president. Yeah. So it's like, you know, an action comedy. The joke uh-huh. being basically that Nicolas Cage ends up in a Nicolas Cage movie on accident. Yeah. 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 Uh, yes. I, so, so this you, movie, it's not bad, okay. um, but you've definitely seen all the best parts. If you've seen the trailer, it's as entertaining as that premise is going to be. And I do think Nicolas Cage and Pedro Pascal have a lot of chemistry. All the stuff with them is great. Where the movie kind of loses me is where it turns into a Nicolas Cage movie and this like whole CIA subplot and the 
the cartel and stuff. And by the third act, it just, you know, kind of becomes a pretty generic action movie. And I think what's frustrating about that is if it's trying to be this action movie, like, like the kinds that it's referencing, like the rock and uh, con air and, and things like that. It doesn't do a great job of that. Mm. Because, you know, by the end, it kind of feels like the end of the that like Melissa McCarthy spy movie thing. You know what I mean? Like all the comedy and character stuff kind of just gets buffaloed by action and plot. None of it is particularly compelling. And the reason it's frustrating is because there's a really good buddy comedy here with just Nicolas Cage and Pedro Pascal. because. All of that works pretty well. The movie's also super meta, but I like that. Uh, the meta stuff was all all pretty enjoyable to me. But that's why, like, when it kind of shifts gears back into just sort of generic action movie, it feels really hollow because the rest of the movie is kind of playing with this, you know, fantasy version of reality and then it just sort of goes into boring action stuff. I don't know. Locks into autopilot after a point. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I think if the movie had just trusted itself to be more of a character comedy, it, it would have been a lot better. You know, if, if this had been a mixture of adaptation and sideways, I, I think it would have been a little more interesting. Instead, it's, just kind of a super fan making a, a super fans movie. Right. So Nicholas Cage is playing a character named Nicholas Cage. He's playing the Nicholas Cage of our universe. Yes. Yeah. So they he's, reference the movies he's in and stuff. Right? Yeah. They reference, you know, Con Air, uh, uh, The Rock. They, re- I mean, you know, they reference all that. It is a fantastical portrayal of, you know, this this actor who is kind of mythic in and of himself. I don't think this movie necessarily lives up to the mythology uh, is, is also part of the problem. I haven't seen the movie, but it's getting a lot of praise out there. Uh, yeah. And so I'm don't... a little surprised that you're not as into it. Um and here's the thing. I didn't hate it. I'm not shitting on it. Like I had a, a thoroughly enjoyable, uh, you know, hour and a half in the the uh, theater. I, I got enough out of it. I just I think it could have been great. And instead, it's just like, yeah, all right. That was pretty good. OK, so I guess the question I have then is Nicolas Cage over the last, I don't know, for a while. Nicolas Cage has kind of become a meme. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what I mean when I say, you know, he's kind of become a legend. Well, there's a a difference between being a legend and being a meme. I I think think he's kind of both. Well, I think he's on the precipice of of becoming one or the other. Um, I think he's been a meme for a hot minute since like the Drive Angry days or Bangkok Dangerous. Like back when he was just like, Churning when shit out. When he was out. paying his taxes off, yeah, right. Whatever the fuck was going on, um, season of the witch or whatever. Yeah, that era. That's when it was just like Nicolas Cage just leaning into. I'm gonna 
do every movie just because. Yeah. And yeah. that's the joke. If you even want to see it as a joke, which some people did, you ironically saw those movies. Mm-hmm. Um, that now there's like a new thing kind of happening since like Mandy-ish. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like Mandy, Color of Outer Space, Pig. Well, he he kind of plays into his reputation a little bit more. And, and you know, because he, he does have this reputation of, of even when he's in those shitty movies, uh, giving like just these totally balls to the wall, unhinged performances, you yeah. know. You know, he's, he's known for either, you know, he can be a very good actor. He can also overact. And he he's very well aware of of all of that. But he's not usually known for phoning it in. <laughs> it's it's usually in between those, you know, like, is this good Nicolas Cage or is this just he's, off off the rails Nicolas Cage? And right, both yeah, are enjoyable did, for different reasons. Exactly. You know, whereas like during the time of like uh the rock and and face off and even like family man and um, even up through like adaptation and stuff like that, he was like kind of taken seriously as well, just so being this... another actor. So I guess my question is for you. Yeah. Now that he is doing this movie, playing himself, kind of telling his story to a certain extent, mm. Um, mm, he's kind that. of putting all of his cards on the table now and saying like, I'm fully aware of the meme i'm fully aware that i'm at this place in my career where i can even make fun of this without looking kind of pathetic i think there's a certain vulnerability for him even doing this movie at I, this point in his career because he just came off of pig which got a lot of praise yeah yeah so yes yes and does no. this movie I uh-huh. my fear for him if i were his agent or something is doing this movie it's like okay if if people see it one way, you're locked into the meme and that'll all that'll be all you ever are. And that's how people are going to see you forever. And you're never going to be taken seriously ever again. Mm-hmm. Or this will transcend the meme and like allow you to make those next steps. What does this movie do for him? I think it's kind of not really. Or is either. it just a fully a lateral move? I, I think it's it plays it a little too safe to totally put his heart on the line. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because like the referencing it does mostly references like his peak action uh, heyday. Right. It doesn't really go into the all, you know, they maybe a couple odd references here and there, um, but doesn't really go into a fairly large stretch of his career where he was, you know, uh, it does a little not, maybe as much as I wanted. Um, but the movie itself, Nicolas Cage takes this role and they take Nicolas Cage as subject matter serious enough that it doesn't feel like this is just a meme. It doesn't feel like this is just, you know, trying, like they give him a character arc. They give it, you know, they, he, he turns in a, a, a pretty good performance of himself. And when he's having fun with it, it's a lot of fun. I think the movie could have maybe gone a little harder at at the is he washed up aspects of it. Ultimately, that's why I wasn't in love with it is it felt a little safe. It felt a little 
middle of the road. Right. It was too, it was too timid to take a stance on either of those. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, uh, what I do mean, you give it as a grade? Uh, I give it a probably B minus. Um, okay. Like it was fine. I, I, you know, uh, I would say probably more of a streamer. Um, like I didn't have to see this in theaters. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was just fine. And I, I wanted it to be really, really good because the last few movies I have seen him in, uh, he's really impressed me. Like, you know, we both talked to pig made both of our uh, best of lists last year. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I'm wondering. It's, I, I just wouldn't want to see him make the progress he's made and then slide back into Bangkok dangerous. I don't think this is that I don't, I, it, it's self-aware enough. Uh, and yeah. it is trying hard enough. It's it's not just schlock for the sake of schlock, you know. It's and not people just... seem to be enjoying it. Yeah, I don't. I don't think this is a backslide. To, to me, it, it feels just more like: Will people be talking about this movie in ten years? Probably not. Mm. Um, you know, if anything, it'll be like, oh yeah, that movie where Nick Cage played himself. But that's about it. Okay, so let's go ahead and start talking about Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. I contacted you mm-hmm. before we before I went and saw this because it had been a minute since I've seen a Marvel movie. Really? Yeah, because you hadn't seen Eternals or Spider-Man. Right, and now there's like five different shows that are running on HBO Max. Disney Plus. uh, Disney Plus, rather. Yeah. And I've only seen WandaVision, which luckily I think is the only thing, only TV show that you really have pretty much have to see before you see this movie. Before you see this, yes. But uh, I, I think, you know, going forward, but definitely connecting the Disney Plus shows in a way that they weren't able to do with like the Netflix shows or or like Agents of Shield. Um right. They're, like they're definitely building stuff on on the shows now. Right, which that's a you know a whole other conversation. But I I really wanted to know whether or not I needed to see the new Spider-Man movie because that dealt with Doctor Strange a little and it also introduce the concept of the multiverse within Marvel, Marvel movies. And so I thought a lot of that might come back. Spider-Man does come up in passing, but this is directed by Sam Raimi. Speaking of Mm Spider-Man who did the original Tobey Maguire films in the early two thousands, Dr. Strange is visiting the wedding of his old lover played by Rachel McAdams, Dr. Christine Palmer who I totally forgot was in the first one. (laughs) Like that was a character that snapped out of my memory. (laughs) Um, And so he's there, he's bummed out because he had to go do Avengers things. And he was, you know, gone for five years during the snapping and she moved on without him. So there's like that going on. And then all of a sudden in the middle of the wedding, the city gets attacked by a Cyclopean Lovecraftian squid creature um, that seems to be controlled by uh, Elizabeth Olsen's Wanda Maximoff, who is now under some sort of spell because of a 
black magic that she's tapped into to try and uh, collapse the multiverse and create her imaginary family that she was living happily in in the WandaVision series Mm -hmm. where she had you know, basically created a bubble universe by controlling the minds of this, of the small town um, and uh, invented children and invented this marriage with, with vision that wasn't real. She seems to be stuck in that trauma on a tear uh, through the multiverse to find uh, her children because she, she realizes that her dreams of these children means that they exist in one of these multiverses one or many of these multiverses. So her plan is to, you know, knock off one of these other Wanda's and steal their children uh, so that she can have her way. You're missing a key detail here. Uh, When the Cyclopean monster attacks, it's because it's trying to, it's trying to get this, this young girl named America Chavez, who seems to have this ability to, jump between universes that she she doesn't seem to have any control over right so wanda needs needs her to be able to wield the power to find and use these other universes so and it involves her sacrifice as well so dr strange is both in charge of stopping wanda and protecting america as they are uh traveling through these different dimensions meeting different versions of themselves um yeah it sounds a little similar to the the movie we just did uh last week the uh or the last episode we did everything everywhere some of these plot points are fairly similar um uh yeah, they mean, play out we're in a dealing with a multiverse way. we're dealing with the ideas of alternate realities and and traveling through them and stopping right. different versions of yourselves and yeah yeah, and, and of an all-powerful, misguided person who's under the control of something else who who has more control over the of these realities than anybody else does, specifically because she's using this this dark magic called the dark old, this uh this uh MacGuffin book that <laughs> she's able to sort of use to guide herself through these universes and to create uh, strong enough powers to wield against these these uh, other superheroes that we visit along the way. So, what did you think? I really liked this movie. I was very happy with it uh, for a lot of reasons. First of all, to me, this is the first. This is like the first real Doctor Strange movie, right? Like we have the origin stuff out of the way. We have. Uh, you know, uh, I, he he hasn't appeared since his own movie, or he's appeared since his own movie, but only as like you know a supporting character who conveniently shows up to do magic and help do a thing or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. You know, and, and you know, to a lot of extent, that's kind of how Doctor Strange is usually used in the comic books, but this was like. Okay, we're gonna we're going to see him actually use all of this different types of magic and see and and just see him be the character I'm more familiar with in the comics and and for him to get his own showcase to do that. Uh, also, on top of that, uh, you know, 
uh, rounding out this arc with with Wanda, they make her a really scary villain in, I think, really cool ways. To me, it was really cool to just see like someone play with the idea of magic in the Marvel universe and to do more with it than just sort of shooting energy beams at each other, which there's still a fair amount of that in this. Mm -hmm. Um, But I I felt like there was a lot more creative magic as well. Uh, Well, There seemed to be a broader range of magic rather than just sort of this vague allusion to Eastern um, Kung Fu magic. Yeah. You see a lot of yeah, that you see a lot of in the first film and, and you know, his portal jumping and that kind of stuff. In this, there is kind of direct talks of more sort of... Occult. It just feels more specific. Yeah. More, you know, like... like I, necromancy, I'm go- more occult, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and, you know, uh, it, it also plays with the, the whole how far is too far, you know, and, and how far will our Doctor Strange go? Will, you know, will he cross any line to save the universe or does he have more control than than maybe we realize? So a- as a character piece for Doctor Strange, I, you know, I felt like this was a really good showing of, of the stuff I like of him from the comics. Also, it was really fun to see Sam Raimi play within the boundaries of the Marvel Universe, but to make it a little more feel a little more Sam Raimi than, say, the Spider-Man movies, um, which definitely have his touch. Uh, uh, But this I think he sneaks a little bit more in here than he did with those. Um, Sure. I uh, think specifically in the third act, when we're dealing with dark spirits and and hauntings and stuff like that there's some stuff especially sort of the manic energy around some of the set pieces that remind me a little bit of like army of darkness for sure yeah totally and and i think army of darkness a lot more even more so than the evil dead movies because that one had i think sort of broader fantasy feel you know like dark fantasy Mm-hmm. Uh, feel to it versus all out horror like the first two kind of did right. um yeah so it was you know really and just i mean he can he plays with suspense really well you know as a director the this is very much in his comfort zone of building tension just through crazy angles and intense zooms and things like that but i think it's effective here you know i i mean it's clearly when people are coming out of the movie saying, Oh, that was not to relitigate the whole PG 13 conversation. But um, I, I, I think the fact that people are having that conversation, it just sort of indicates how effective he is as a director with tension and, uh, uh, and building suspense and, and things like that. Okay. I wasn't as thrilled. Okay. I I had fun with it and I think that there's, you know, it's basically a a thrill ride. It's good enough. Um I like some of the set pieces. I think the best set piece in the movie uh is is when they're in the universe with the alternate Avengers in what they call the Illuminati building. Essentially 
Wanda sends a version of herself after them, and it becomes this 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 chase sequence mm-hmm. that I think's done pretty well. And she, you know, I think very purposefully uh, is is covered in blood in a way that makes her look a lot like Sissy Spacek and Carrie. Um, sure, yeah. Uh, so he's kind of making some allusions to horror in 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 some of this stuff. Um, I think that sequence works really well. I like the there. I mean, there's also you know there's also a, a possession sequence that is you know again it's not. I didn't think it was scary, but it's definitely calling back to his horror roots. He's definitely using those tricks. Yes, he uh, he's using Marvel's toolbox to do some of the things he does. And I think uniformly it still fits into the MCU's tone and and state of purpose. Yeah, for sure. He's not allowed to go too off the rails with with what he might have done otherwise. I don't know. Maybe this is exactly what he would have done. But well, it, I to, mean, I to me the movie as idiosyncratic as it is comparatively i still think there is a a pretty slick gloss or patina over the whole thing that is distinctly commercial and distinctly well, yes, yes. fits I, I into mean, the disney marvel motifs yes it's it's absolutely not evil dead it's not splat stick um, right. uh, uh, you know, there aren't gallons of blood being poured, you know, I, I mean, yeah. Right. And but, I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect that, but I but mean, again, like we've seen Sam Raimi do this with, you know, with dark man, we've seen him do it with Spider-Man. Like, like, right. It, it doesn't have to be evil dead to have right. his fingerprints all over. It. And that I, I what liked. I'm saying is I think that even dark man in the Spider-Man movies, flaws and everything feel more creator owned than this movie where it feels more for hire. And that's not my, you know, whether or not it's an auteur piece or not is not my complaint with the movie. Sure. sure. I think it, uh, he does what he was hired to do and he does it fairly well. And there's, there's fun set pieces along the way. My problem is there's not a lot of anything supporting those set pieces. To me, the movie is basically just a collection of set pieces. And I don't think it really works as a character piece for any of the main leads in the movie because it's it's a little busy getting from one thing to another that they're, they're never really able to establish uh, an effective emotional arc with any of them. Uh, the best we get from the leads is Wanda's arc, but we've basically seen that all play out already in WandaVision. And I think more effectively here, it's kind of just the same, but in a different context. Uh, I don't think it's the same. I, I, I mean, to me, this is, this is the culmination of the WandaVision arc. Like I, I don't, I don't think it's the same because it, it it's still going. Well, you know, in, like in WandaVision, it was played as a mystery and they, sure. leaked, they leaked it out for whatever it was, 10 episodes. Um, she didn't go full villainous heel in that, you know, it, it, it still ends with she did bad things, but it still ends with her. 
sort of searching for redemption for for uh for her trying to atone for that in, in this you know she's an unapologetic killer like uh, right and i and maybe there's a little there's a little lack of a of a bridge between those two things the the three main emotional arcs that are basically trying to happen in this movie and need, none of them really get addressed well enough to work on a story level as far as i'm concerned is that you have the Wanda thing, which I've already stated why I don't think that pays off quite like it should. And then you have the Doctor Strange arc, which is basically him regretting what he could have had with Rachel McAdams' character. And then, you know, I, I don't through think the that's... events of the film kind of has some sort of resolution there. But to me, that's so minor that it's not she doesn't really feel like a full-fledged character in this so much as 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 this plot device to to keep him motivated and uh, then I, the yes Amer- and no. the I, last I, one being america's mm-hmm. emotional arc with her parents which i think works the least and probably should have been massaged more in the script with having her lose her parents and coming to terms with her powers but she is essentially just a MacGuffin character. She, like her job is to function as a as a literal tool to uh, to get from you know one reality to an, to another. And I okay. also don't think the actress is particularly great. Uh, as far as America Chavez goes, I I agree with you completely. They didn't, um, yeah, they didn't do really anything to to really have me be invested with whether that or not this girl does live or die. Like I, I understand that it's bad and that we don't want her to die because she's a person, but the, yeah, they don't, they don't do any, anything with her really other than have her jump between universes on, on that note. I do agree with you completely. I also agree with you as far as uh, Rachel McAdams is concerned. And, you know, in general, uh, if we want to get real deep about it, this this movie might have a little bit of an issue with its female characters. The one, the most well-rounded one is completely evil, right. <laughs> which, you know, if we want to look at that, I think that's valid. I do think Doctor Strange has has more of an arc there, though, than, than you're giving it credit for. I... I felt like there was a lot of stuff about the idea of what it is to be a hero. And, you know, it's very superhero-y stuff. But, um, you know, like, was there an... And again, it's all kind of playing into other movies and and stuff that we've seen from him before. But I felt pretty satisfied with it. Um, You know, the, the question of was Iron Man sacrificed that he led him to? The Could he... Was there other options you know how far will he go to save the world and to save himself Uh, you know and to be is he really being a hero just because he can do magic i i thought there was that stuff was good right and does he does he actually have the control you know as a control freak yeah does he actually have the control over this these tools is magic that he is supposed to powerfully wield and he meets versions of himself that don't. And, and does he have 
the ability to to walk away does he is is he in control enough to say he doesn't have control you know like i think all of those are fine ideas my my issue is that the movie never stops to take a breath long enough to to let any of that soak in so that they're more it's more thematic gesturing than actually uh working itself in in a story way so and, and you know i'm not trying to sit shit on this movie and say no it's no no and, and, and i think you're... it's i think it is um about as good as the first one maybe a little bit better because there's a it's a little bit more unique in some regards it's not just iron man with magic mm-hmm. i like the idiosyncratic stuff i like the sam raimi stuff but yeah. you know if we're going back to our batman discussion that's all like um special sauce this movie <laughs> excels in special sauce but i i i don't think it's a it's a great screenplay it feels kind of shaggy and and a little unkempt and and maybe i'm a little spoiled because we just got out of everything everywhere that you know for as fast as it moves and as much stuff as it's throwing at you i feel like it never undercuts the story stuff whereas this movie to me felt like a pile of Christmas ornaments without a tree holding it up. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I completely agree with your analogy. I, I but I do. I, I mean, yeah, if we're comparing multiversal movies, which why not? Um, they both exist within our one universe. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, every, everything everywhere all at once has a lot more finesse. It has a lot more grace. It has a, it has a much better screenplay. You know, I think this movie yeah, maybe bites off a little more than it can chew at times. I don't know. I don't think it, it, to me, it didn't, it, and maybe it's because of the broader MCU narrative that I am caught up with. And then, you know, and I, and I'm not saying you're not because you are caught up enough that all of the story should make sense, but. I don't know the way the MCU serializes their stories to me, this felt felt just as complete. I don't know. I, I, I don't disagree with you though. Like, I mean, obviously I think some things could have been tighter. I, I would have liked more of a character moment between America and, and Dr. Strange to see like why he's trying so hard to save her. I, I would have liked some character connection there. Um, mm. you know, because what we get is a pretty choppy flashback sequence that is like, okay, so I agree. This movie's not without flaws, but I don't know. I was having so much fun with it. I kind of didn't care. Yeah. Um, I think mileage may vary on, on, uh, your enjoyment of the movie based upon how invested are you in the MCU? Generally speaking. Sure. Yeah. That I, that's fair. And all of these movies are serviceable for the most part. Even the ones I don't really care for or never have to see again, I wasn't walking out of the movie angry. I mean, you haven't seen Eternals, so. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't yet. There, like I said, there are things about this movie that I do like. I, I, I think by the third act, I was like, okay, this is what I came to see. There was a lot of like getting to that where I was like, all right, movie, like, let's, if you're not going to give me more character stuff, then 
you know, throw some demons at me already. <laughs> um, and they do. And then I'm, and then I'm having a lot more fun, but it's uh, yeah, for me, this is a B minus it's, it's fine. Uh, for me, this is a B plus. I, I, I mean, I do agree with you. It's, around that range but i don't know i i had a lot of fun with this movie uh I, and maybe maybe that's part of it i was just sort of so swept up in the i i mean dr strange is i didn't read a lot of dr strange comics when i was a kid uh or anything like that but he's i think a, just a fascinating character i mean marvel has a lot of flawed detached brilliant geniuses right. um but he's always just been interesting to me. I like, and in particular, I like the way they've been adapting magic to the MCU. So for me, it was very exciting to see them just go full hog into that. But yeah, I, I you're not, you're not totally wrong. <laughs> well, I'm glad, but I'm, I'm a little worried that the success of No Way Home and even before that, if you want to count uh, into the Spider-Verse as sort of the inspiration for the direction of No Way Home. I'm afraid that these multiverse movies, because you, you know Hollywood and the way they kind of think of things. Mm. Once something gets traction, everything has to sort of be like, okay, Multiverse. Nobody wants to see anything but multiverse movies now. Yeah. So the, I, uh, the next, whatever the next movie is going to be, or it's like, okay, we got to hop through a multiverse. We got to meet five different versions of the same character. And I'm not saying that this movie had no business doing that. It makes sense for this character. But I, I'm just saying, like, yeah, predictively, I really hope that they don't overshoot their shot with this multiverse stuff. For the time being, especially as, you know, we build towards the next climax of whatever's supposed sure. to happen. I, I mean, based off the comics, I will say this is probably not going to be the last time that the multiverse is referenced. I kind of understand your trepidation, and I do hope these don't kind of just become cameo fests. Uh, but... I will say, I think a lot of people said that about Marvel from the very beginning. And this phase of Marvel doesn't seem to be necessarily as focused as some of the pre-Infinity War stuff. But I still haven't gotten anywhere where I'm like, don't trust the captains at the ship, if, if that makes sense. Um, so that's that. Okay, let's go ahead and finish out here with our streaming homework, 24-Hour Party People. This was released in 2001. Uh, Keith, what happens in this movie? This is about Tony Wilson. Uh, real life, by the way. It took me a little while to realize that. Uh, real life British reporter who was around the music scene in the late 70s and set up uh, Factory Records, which, I mean, based off of my limited knowledge, uh, and I'm sure you'll go into much more detail about this, seemed to also help be the catalyst between uh, punk rock music and uh, new wave music. 
uh, Factory Records, which was a record label where the artists owned everything. Um, uh, it was sort of an artist's first kind of movement. Uh, and because of that, uh, eventually collapses under the weight of its own ambition with along with other issues. And this movie is done from Tony Wilson's point of view, played by uh, Steve Coogan in almost a kind of uh, mix between like documentary style and and narrative mm-hmm. uh, and uh, helped discover Joy Division and uh, what was the other big big one that was in the movie a lot of happy mondays was was that what they're called yeah uh which they started kind of more towards the late 80s into the early 90s and you know, of course joy division becoming new new order as well and new order i guess the other big project by by tony wilson besides starting factory records and putting out these seminal records by these bands is creating these spaces in Manchester. Yeah. Um, these like club scenes where, yeah. He, yeah. He, he, uh, he, you know, set up uh, these, these punk rock nights at a place called the Hacienda, which was where all of these bands were able to showcase and get their, their notice and their notoriety. And I guess a lot of people don't really think about this, specifically Americans don't really understand that. Um, the punk rock scene in the seventies was largely focused on London at the time mm-hmm. and the bands that were coming out of there, um, and the Roxy and, you know, all of these different, you know, Malcolm McLaren and all of them kind of gathering around the London scene, whereas Tony Wilson and these clubs that he started and, uh, Joy Division later New Order really put Manchester on the map, mm-hmm. the, uh, which is Northern England. Yeah. Um, that's, that's also a big part of this story is, is it's just as much about Manchester as is about Tony Wilson, who is kind right. of insufferable douche. Yeah. You know, it's, it's a, I mean, he, he sets it up at the beginning of the movie. You know, we see him doing these silly little human interest pieces and stuff for the news organization that he works for. And he's doing this dumb hang gliding story. And, uh, you know, he crashes on the, and he, he does a lot of first person camera breaking the fourth wall stuff and, you know, makes a joke that this is, uh, this is going to be a rise and fall story. This is about flying too close to the sun. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but it's, it's as on the nose as it sounds. Right. And they make no illusions about that. The, the movie is going to follow that sort of trajectory and it's the movie is very postmodern, very self-aware. Yeah. It's com- uh, he, he's commenting on the movie throughout uh, characters break the fourth wall. Um, yeah. all A lot the of these people that the movie is talking about play other characters in the film. Um, or side parts, you know, little cameos and stuff, uh, along with the the other actors who are playing playing them younger. You know, this is a movie I've known about for a while, both being a fan of a lot of this music, but also being a fan of 
uh, Michael Winterbottom as a director. Um, he would later go on to do the the, uh, uh, the trip movies. Mm-hmm. You know, I am Steve Coogan and the other guy, like uh, these very dialogue driven comedies. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I mean, he's done a lot of movies outside of that as well. But him and Coogan have been a pair for a while. And this is more of a sort of humble beginnings. Um, this is a very low budget. Yeah. Um, and there's a little bit of it that it's like, is it as low budget as it is because this is what they had to work with? Or are they also sort of stylizing certain things so that it blends with the with the archival footage a little bit oh, more seamlessly? It was- definitely stylized because this this movie was from 2002 mm-hmm. and like there were very intentional like effects to make it look like you know vh uh uh film grain right um, yeah some of that was very intentional um and to good effect i mean there were time like i thought i didn't know what i was getting into with this movie um I didn't think this was about like a real person and real stuff until like names I recognized started getting said. And it was right at first. I thought it was almost going to be like a, a, a like reality bites meets uh forest Gump type of thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> like, Oh, okay. He's just happens to be around when joy division is forming and stuff. I'm then I was like, Oh no. Okay. Oh, he's a real guy. Like, this is okay. Right. I mean, this is an interesting movie. It, I think at times it's, I think at times this movie definitely trades narrative for style because there were times when it was kind of hard to suss out what was going on and like what band he was talking about or what or where Factory Records sort of was in this rise and fall trajectory. Mm hmm. But a lot of the stuff they did was really cool. Like the way they blended archival footage with the the narrative elements was pretty seamless. Right. And I, and I thought that it was a, a smart move uh, to use as much arch- archival footage as possible. So they didn't have to find as many actors to play other, you know, like famously there's this this gig that the sex pistols plays early on in their career um, where uh, there was only like 40 something people in the audience and uh, like half of them ended up starting bands (laughs) um, that went on to become something of note later. Mm -hmm. And I've heard that story told by other people, but it was cool to sort of relive that and the way that they cut to, the archival stuff for the sex pistols, as opposed to just getting actors that kind of look like Johnny rotten or whatever. I thought that was really smart. And then later on when uh, joy division becomes a bigger part of the story, because kind of bifurcated into like two main parts. Like the first half is really the story of the beginning of factory records and, and joy division Mm -hmm. Um, ending with, and I don't think this is a, Spoiler, because it's pretty well known, ending with the death of Ian Curtis when he killed himself right before they were supposed to tour America. 
mm-hmm. um, and leaving the rest of the band to either sink or swim. And then luckily they pivoted pretty quickly into new order and ended up doing very, very well for themselves. Which by the way, uh, Sean Harris plays Ian Curtis and he's great. In Dead this. ringer. I've everybody, even John Sim who plays Bernard Sumner, who was a guitar player would later uh, become the singer for, for new order at that age looked exactly fucking like him. Hmm. Anybody's a fan of like British comedy and like, you know, the early Edgar Wright stuff and stuff. You're going to notice a lot of people in this movie. Yeah. It's just kind sort of, of a who's who of British character, comedian uh, actors and comedians. Yeah. A lot of them right before they got big. Yeah. Um, so it's kind of, I mean, even Andy circus um, who's mostly known for doing mocap work now plays a, a pretty significant character here as a, re- as a, like a moody record producer. Um, <laughs> And does a great like character part in this. I I will say I I wish I had realized this was not fictional from the beginning because mm-hmm. there was I think a lot of stuff that I maybe kind of missed or or like references that were dropped so quick that you know I didn't realize that was you know what I mean like because that's kind of the pacing of this movie it just sort of. It, it very much jumps from kind of scene to scene without right. a lot of that connective tissue. Right. It's not really holding your hand through the history stuff. Like no, it, not at all. It's coming from a perspective of a, of a British audience who will know this stuff. And so if you don't, or you're only have a cursory passing understanding of some of these, I mean, even I'm into a lot of this like British post-punk stuff. I'm like, you know, it's my bread and butter, but there's, there's even some of the bands and stuff. Some of the, like the more second to third tier factory bands. I'm like, Oh, I don't know these ones. Sure. Um, yeah. And then later, you know, into the formation of uh, more of the club scene, when the post-punk scene kind of develops more into this dance scene. Mm-hmm. Um. And they talk about like that, like the introduction of like sort of neo psychedelia meeting with like funk music and groove and dance. And, and that sort of develops later into the nineties as what we call Brit pop with the happy Mondays featuring very heavily into the second half of the movie, as far as that goes. Yeah. I mean, I, this is stuff I kind of know about, but it, it, uh, it does kind of just like, I w- there were times I'll agree with where I would like a date, at least at the, the bottom of the screen. Like, how many years have we passed now? Yeah, exactly. That's what I mean. Like, uh, it, it there there are times when it's kind of jarring and hard to follow. There there were other times when not at all. And it's like, you know, and uh, has some great scenes and some um really funny dry as hell moments mm-hmm. um but it, it, it all feels sort of chock-a-block you know because and i don't know maybe maybe part of it was because of the the archival footage so they didn't necessarily want to build a scene around certain events but because of that i i think it was very easy to miss something or very easy to not totally understand what was happening in a certain scene. 
Yeah, I think to some to some degree, it's not aiming to be comprehensive. It's aiming more towards yeah. telling Tony's story and telling the story of the of this moment in time with the pacing of the film. I think it almost sort of hits the fast forward button a few times on purpose to kind of get the idea like things were moving really fast and it was one thing after another. And it was, Oh, it sure. Got, it it yeah. got away from him. He wasn't even able to, you know, cause all this whole time while he's running this successful label and managing a new order who are a huge band at this all throughout the eighties. Um, and trying to get these clubs off the ground and, and then, you know, getting these other bands signed the whole time, he's still doing like stupid human interest piece news stories for the, as a reporter. And he has like two marriages that he fumbles and, you know, so there's well, a little that, bit of like that, uh, but that's what I mean. Like even that stuff at times feels a little glossed over. And I, I, I do think that, yeah, maybe there is some intentionality to it because it is easy to get kind of swept up from scene to scene. But at, time, at times, I think it's still needed to kind of just break it down a little bit for me. You, you know what I mean? Right. Uh, or, or hold a beat a little longer. Or, yeah, yeah. yeah. Or, or give me a setup of to what's going on because, you know, there were scenes where it was like, I didn't even realize what was happening until the scene was done. And, and then I'm already on to the next thing. Right. Uh, so at times it could be a little frustrating of a watch. Yeah, there is, there is a, there is a, a slapdash quality to the editing. And I think part of that is stylistic. And I think part of that is limiting the story, the parts of the story they really want to tell. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so there is contextual stuff that doesn't stay in the picture because of that. And again, there's this is a British film made for a British audience. For sure. Yeah. Um, oh, I, think, I think they also shot a lot of stuff documentary style, too. So I, I yeah. think there's like a lot of footage that didn't make it into the movie. I'm right? sure I would I would guarantee there is just by the nature of how it's shot. Yeah. I, I mean, I like the movie, not just because it's about stuff that I'm interested in, because whenever whenever any movie is kind of like talking about this stuff, it's on the precipice of cringe for me. Sure. Yeah. And I'm like, OK, like, I mean, there, there's another movie called Control. That's the story of Joy Division story of uh, Ian Curtis. And it's told a lot more reverently mm-hmm. um it, it gets a little maudlin yeah i think it's like it, it gets it turns into a little bit of a messianic kind of story you know mm-hmm. like they still show him for all his flaws and everything and and i knew that he had like um really bad epilepsy and that kind of stuff because it, I, I had seen that movie but i actually like this approach more where it's coming more from a comedic context so even when it gets into the, you know, the darker stuff of like the suicide and all that stuff, it there is a there's a, a certain amount of there's more objectivity to it mm-hmm. because of that. And even though you have like these actors playing these real people and and playing them like characters in a movie, that 
it never felt like it didn't become messianic or it didn't become sort yeah, of hero worshipy or or Rocky drama style. Totally. Yeah. It, it felt it, like it was more interested in being funny, interesting indie film more than it was a reverent recreation of this time period. Yeah. And I, I, I definitely agree with you there. And and I I do respect the movie for doing that because it even though it wasn't always narratively speaking the easiest to watch, it was really um it has a kind of underground quality to it that leads to its coolness a little bit. Right. It feels authentically cool as opposed yeah. to trying to steal somebody else's cool. <laughs> totally. Yeah. It, it it that's a good way of putting it. Um, and I think uh really what's holding the whole thing together, because it is kind of shambolic in a way. Um charmingly so but it is but i think what really holds it together is steve coogan's performance yeah and steve he's coogan's the through line you know who who tethers the audience through all of this yeah yeah and and um yeah his performance is great uh uh again even though i thought this was fiction um very quickly you you know learn what kind of a character this is uh but he uh, he does uh it's a very interesting performance too because he has to kind of walk this tightrope between um uh uh creating a character creating a real person and also sort of being the narrator and guide through this movie so it it's an interesting performance it's an interesting it's an interestingly written character right and also he's very instrumental in a big part of english culture but he was also not a great guy no <laughs> yeah but, he's... but he also like if you look at the way that he conducted his business he was more uh artist friendly than most even other indie labels, which, you know, especially in the early 80s, there are so many stories of indie labels just ripping bands the fuck off because sure. they had to to survive. Well, what what's interesting, too, is the way the character is portrayed, mm. and the, like there's layers to it, right? Like he he's a cool guy. He's involved in the scene. He wants to be involved in the scene. He helps create these spaces. He helps create these records, but then he also will let you fucking know about every step of the way. You know what I mean? Like, right. uh, it's a very interesting character piece. Like at what point are you not cool for talking about how cool you are? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know if the real Tony, Tony. Oh, sure. Wilson, yeah. I, would be as braggadocious as the character as written. Um, but but it works for a movie. It works for a a, a a character they're creating. And yes, there's a hubris element to the character that that plays throughout. And I think Coogan, his comedic talents is perfect for that. Well, I mean, yeah, that is that is very much his milieu. Right. So I recommend it. I think it's, I think it is kind of shaggy. 
Um, it's what I love about indie, like early independent cinema, when it was, when it felt vital and real and mm-hmm. style found through imperfection. Yeah, yeah, I I agree with that. I I do think that for an American audience, this might be a harder watch, especially if you're not familiar with with these um a lot of this you know these sort of cultural touchstones mm-hmm. um you know like i uh i think ashley was getting a little lost and a little bored at times um but i do think i do think if if this subject matter or this style of movie interests you then i definitely recommend it yeah i mean if it interested you probably seen it yeah but yeah i mean as far as i'm concerned i think this is better than uh control um as far as just telling the story of joy division i mean i prefer i prefer this approach way more sure um, i i haven't seen control but i i thought that's i thought that section of the movie felt s- sort of the the narratively speaking the cleanest yeah all right so what do you have for the streaming homework next week? Uh, next week, we are going to be watching John Carpenter's Ghosts of Mars. I'm, I'm working my way through my John Carpenter list. He has a lot of movies, more than most people realize. I have seen a, a, a good chunk of them. I have too, but I mean, I'm always, I always find like two more like, oh, he did some tv movie i mean there's like always yeah i'm not necessarily counting the tv stuff (laughs) uh i haven't seen a movie of his yet that i've completely hated so i want to test those waters because this might be it (laughs) yeah this this isn't generally well loved um i remember when it came out i did not see it uh but we'll, we'll talk about it yeah it's uh streaming on hulu and if anybody has anything to say about any of the movies we talked about on this episode or previous, you can email us at mcguffinpod at gmail.com. You can also contact us at our social media, either on Twitter or Instagram, at mcguffinpod. Uh, leave us a five-star rating and a one-sentence review of whatever podcatcher is your preferred platform, whether it be Spotify, Google Podcasts, uh, preferably iTunes. And bump us up in the algorithm by just leaving us, uh, you know, a couple heart emojis, whatever. And if uh, you want to read my reviews that I do for the Idaho State Journal, Google Idaho State Journal Arts and Entertainment page, and then look for my byline somewhere on there. And you can follow me on uh, Instagram at VC Cassidy. And be sure to read the other reviews and articles written by the rest of the MacGuffin staff over at MacGuff.in. You can follow me on Instagram at Keith Foster Kid. That is also my Twitter handle, but don't follow me. I'm, I'm honestly trying to get off of it. If Elon Musk buys it and Donald Trump ends up back on there, I will definitely delete my account forever. Uh, so don't even bother. You can also follow my <laughs> art account on Instagram. Uh, instagram at sticky note aesthetic uh also ooh, yes 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 i have a a couple shows coming up actually this will come out after one of them um but i am 
joining a team on mock at Mockingbird Improv. There's a team I was with uh, before many, many years ago called Improv versus Standup, um, where they invite stand-up comedians to come and do their sets. And then we do improv scenes based off their sets. It's a really fun show. It runs every Saturday night at Mockingbird Improv at Liberty Station in San Diego. Um, it's currently, I think, the only late night show they have. So it's every Saturday night at 9 p.m. I'll be in it this Saturday, but by the time this comes out, you will, that will have happened. Uh, and next Saturday. And I'll try to keep my website updated with show dates at www.keithfosterkid.com. All right. And that is the end of the show. This time it's going to take more than killing me to kill me. Bye.